Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. I get a lot of questions about narcissistic relationships, being in a relationship with a narcissist, how to recover, how to move forward, how to make sure that you never experience that again. It's not something that I personally encountered over my 27 years of dating. I'm not sure how I dodged that bullet, but because I didn't experience a relationship with a narcissist, I wanted to be sure that I brought an expert to the program to share her professional expertise and personal journey of marrying and then divorcing a narcissist. Dr. Annie Kazina joins us today, and here's a little bit more about her. Annie Kazina, PhD, has been an emotional and narcissistic abuse coach for 17 years, working with thousands of women and men worldwide, as well as a multi-award winning author of three relationship books. She is also a woman who spent 20 years with an abusive, narcissistic partner before she finally realized that something was terribly wrong that she could not fix by working harder at the relationship. Now blessed with a truly lovely partner, Annie specializes in teaching abuse survivors to believe in their own worth, build a joyful life after abuse, and enjoy healthy, fulfilling relationships in every area of their lives. Dr. Casino, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Karen. I'm delighted to be with you. I really appreciate your work. We've connected on Instagram and you cover a topic that is definitely a pain point for many in my community. So I've been looking for quite a while to have someone come on the program to speak to this concern. It's very much something that my community has dealt with in past relationships or currently even, and that's being in a relationship with a narcissist. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came upon this area? And I know it's probably nothing that you ever set out to, I want to be the expert on narcissism because it's not such a pretty place to be, but yet (laughs) such a very important place for those who are struggling and have gone through that trauma to have someone to look to for support and counsel and advice? Well, the way I got into it was that I was in a very long marriage and it was a profoundly unhappy marriage, but I thought it was worth fighting for. Gradually, I started to get an awareness that something was wrong. And I thought that that something was wrong was that my husband had an anger problem. He certainly was a very angry man. Then I was told that it was actually not an anger problem, but emotional abuse. And there's certainly a huge degree of emotional abuse in it. And subsequently, I realized that actually I was dealing with a narcissist. And there's this incredible feeling when I realized that I was someone that this had happened to, all these things had happened to me, and that were very huge numbers of people out there. 
And I felt, well, someone had to start redressing the balance. And I thought, hell, you know, this is my best way of doing something meaningful with my experience. That's how it started for me. It's so true that so many of us, I've heard it put this way, your mess becomes your message. So those messy, yeah, those messy seasons of our lives, we take the power back by saying, okay, I now am going to work my mind around this, figure out, in your case, use my education and my degrees to become more savvy so that I can share that wisdom that I learned through so much heartache, but I can share that now with others hoping to help educate them. As you said, there's very little out there unless you've taken some graduate coursework in psychology. There's very little, at least until very recently. I do think social media, there are accounts like yours that are helping to, to shed light on what can feel very, very clandestine. And I know that from the women that I interact with, they feel completely caught off guard. They had no idea. And as you spoke to in your marriage, you had no idea. Here you are a psychologist and you're in an emotionally abusive marriage. Absolutely. And I was actually married to someone in the medical profession as well, but he was very interested in mental health. And he had a lot of explanations for everything that was wrong in our marriage. And it was all my emotional problems, which is very typical of a narcissist. So there's definitely the portion that you just spoke to of the narcissist frames your reality. They're very slick. And they're very conniving. And of course, he's a medical professional. So he believes that he's above many people. I'm not saying all doctors feel that way, but some have that. And certainly they will wield that I know more. And then set the tone for the relationship such that you begin to doubt yourself. And so how does that happen? Because I know many in my community are strong, empowered women, and yet they go, how did I get duped? I think that's an absolutely fascinating question. And I think the thing is that you can be a strong, independent woman and have deep wounds, deep wounds that... Mm likely stem from childhood where you were made to feel that you were not that lovable, that you had to earn love. And so you have a raft of doubts about yourself, and that is perfectly manageable to be this strong, independent, brilliant person in the world and yet be vulnerable and wounded and therefore, unfortunately, that bit more susceptible to a certain kind of person who comes along. And a narcissist will present as a lot of them, not all of them, but an awful lot of them will present as everything you ever wanted. Mm. So they come across to you as this wonderful human being. And part of their contract is that if you let them into your life, They will ensure that you feel like a wonderful person too. That is within their gift to bestow upon you. But they also very much keep it in their gift to take away from you. So you get this most wonderful feeling when you're with them that finally there is someone who sees you and gets you and loves you. And they do this very well. And then gradually they start taking it away 
the first time that it happens, you think, my God, what on earth have I done? Because I must have done this to make this person pull out on me like this. And you do whatever it takes to get them to love you again. And then they gradually start dripping their little bits of poison into your heart. They start letting you know then you're not as good as they thought you were. That actually you're not really worthy of them. And in theory, as a strong, independent woman, you'd say, hey, I'm not taking this. I'm walking away. But the reality is slightly different. What I've noticed with the many clients I've worked with over the years is that they do a trial run with you very early on, a trial run to see how you will take a bit of disrespect and a bit of rejection. And if you take it, and it seems like a small thing, as many red flags do, but if you take it, they have then got their confirmation that you will take more and more and more. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, it does. And it actually is very familiar to something I've just come across with another book I was reading that talks about these subtle little signs Mm. of would-be abusers and really encourages women to, like you said, those, those small little flags, they're just fluttering in the wind and they don't seem all that important. And we're, we're taught to give someone a chance and, Mm. and don't be so judgmental. And, you know, nobody's perfect. And then women, if you've been single for too long, too in quotes, right? Too long by someone's standards. You're too picky. That's your problem. So oh. then we, right? So we meet someone and we start giving them all this leeway because we think, well, gosh, I've just been too judgy and I've been the problem. So I've got to give someone a chance. I mean, they're human after all. And I can imagine that that mindset can facilitate the failure to notice these red flags and then allow this narc to just keep grooming you. They've tested you. Oh, she'll take that bit of disrespect. And that yeah. I'll just drop that in to see what happens. And then, okay, a couple of weeks later, drop in a little bit more. So I can understand how that could happen, as you pointed out, even with the most strongest, independent, strong-minded women. It doesn't matter, like you said, if they have this place of void from, again, childhood wounds, unfortunately, they're more vulnerable then to the narcissist to wield their power. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say that the word picky is one that brings me out in a rage every time (laughs) because that is an abusive word. Yes. You know, how dare you tell someone that they should value themselves less and settle for less? It is just outrageous. Nobody should consider themselves picky if they're not settling for a man. They should consider themselves discerning. That's the entire point of my book. So I'm over here just uh, (laughs) clapping. And yeah, because you're speaking my language for sure. And that's one of the themes of all my work is that we shouldn't be settling and that we are only asking for the high quality relationship that we are 
fully prepared to give. This messaging is what causes people to settle and then be in relationships that are unsatisfying. And then they have kids and then there's parents who don't really love each other. I mean, all this kind of stuff. This is not good for society, for families, and certainly not good for our mental health because as we've spoken to, it prepares us to be vulnerable to a narcissist. It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast. And I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love, and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk, and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May, tim at loveandlifemedia.com. Now, when we talk about these narcissists, when I was studying such things, the personality disorders were understood to be pretty well established within the first two years of life. So the narcissist, it has their own wounds and deficits, which have then cause them to essentially have infantile neediness, infantile grandiosity, the way that a two-year-old marches around the terrible twos, right? Marches around the room. They're wielding their little maniacal power as a two-year-old and expecting everyone to kowtow to them. And that essentially you can look at a 45-year-old narcissist and they may appear very accomplished and very capable in many realms of life, but emotionally, they really have the emotional uh, maturity of a two-year-old. Absolutely. When I was in my marriage and I was with the husband who was a medical professional and probably about 45. There was one night when he was very, very angry. He happened to be in his underpants at the time. And as he slammed the door, I actually had a picture of this overgrown child in my head. I actually saw the fickle two-year-old in the body set of the man. It was that clear. I didn't know what the hell I was looking at at the time, but it was like that, totally. But I think one thing that bugs me a lot is people say, oh, narcissists are wounded, we've got to understand them, and we've got to have compassion for them. I have a big issue with that. Narcissists have been wounded. It's very likely. It's true, but so have we all. And some people have gone one way, and some people have gone another and narcissists choose their behaviors they choose who they do it to they have some control and i think that's for me very important to hold on to that 
I agree. I think it's very important. You know, I did an Instagram post a while ago and I said, your past is an explanation, not an excuse. Yeah. I do think that for women like you and me, we're analytical, we're psychologists, and certainly the women in my community, we're very cerebral. We do want to understand, but that doesn't give someone a pass. We Mm -hmm. all have to, part of the hallmark of being an adult is to own your choices, have personal responsibility, personal accountability. And this is something that some people resist because they do feel that their wounds are so profound. Their trauma was so severe that they have the right or they're entitled to a victim mindset. And I know as, as a former therapist, I certainly honor and respect and want to meet people where they are. I also know that after a time, yes, your wound must be validated. Yes, your emotions are legitimate and should also be validated. I also know that after a time, if we don't move from that toward a more empowered stance, then we're allowing people to wallow and never thrive. Adhering to a victim mindset will get no one anywhere, frankly. And so there's a tension there because it can sound callous to expect someone to own their choices in adulthood. Speak to that a little bit. Uh, That is a real challenge. But I totally agree with you that victims have every need and right to be heard and acknowledged. But my experience has been that most victims who are genuine victims actually want a way out of their pain. They want healing. Yes. The pain of victimhood is too much. Mm -hmm. And they say, you know, if there's a way to stop doing this, I will stop. And narcissists have a wonderful victim story. They all do. Whether it has any bearing on reality is another matter. Some narcissists have had dreadful childhoods. Some have had less dreadful childhoods. But um, it's like for them a cut finger could be more painful than an amputation of a leg without anesthetic might be for another people, another person. They can actually focus on whatever pain they've got and justify how they treat other people because of it. And they will stay with that pain because it gives them power and leeway. Oh, my. Yeah. It's sometimes when I talk about these things, it seems so convoluted. So putting myself in your situation in a marriage and you've said vows and you've created a life with someone and then to slowly start to see them reveal themselves to you. And again, your mindset is, wait, I fell in love. We had this amazing romance. We said vows, we committed to each other. And yet to see it being so slowly revealed, I'm sure that there were times where you felt, and I've heard this from those who've struggled with this or been in a relationship with a narcissist, that they feel that they can't trust their own judgment anymore. They become so, it feels so convoluted for them in their own experience, in their own mind. Well, yes, I think there are two things going on there, actually. If I can share my own experience, because it actually illustrates both. Oh, please do, yes. Well, I met my husband 
and married him very swiftly, as one often does with narcissists. They're quick mm. wooers. They want to tie you into a commitment very fast. Part of the reason was because his mother was threatening to come over from another country and stay with him, and he was terrified of that. So that was one reason for marrying quickly. So he married me very quickly. My parents, who were not a bundle of laughs, disowned me. Oh. So I was deep in trauma. And on our honeymoon, my then husband had his first full-blown temper tantrum and silent treatment and stopped talking to me for 24 hours on the honeymoon. Oh, my. So there I was. He'd achieved one thing that narcissists love to do, totally isolating me from my family so that I had kind of lost my support system. Mm -hmm. Going back, I would have had to make myself look like a fool. So there's that side, the public humiliation that they mm -hmm. create for you. And on the other side, there is this, I just don't get it, what's happened here, you know. Right. And you're totally destroyed, and all you've got left is to try to get the relationship to work again. You know, it's a really shocking scenario that you find yourself in, and it's a huge trauma, and you get over that one, and then the trauma is repeated and repeated and repeated, and you do really do end up with CPTSD because mm -hmm. it's just shocking, and you're totally totally disoriented anybody in that scenario doesn't really have a chance to make sense of it they've got so much stuff going on so much pain yeah it reminds me of the the classic cycle of abuse where there's like yeah. it's, and and we think of that typically that model spoke to physical abuse but obviously we're much more aware that there's many different forms of yes. abuse of abuse sadly and yes emotional abuse narcissistic abuse and that narcissistic rage that then with the stonewalling on your honeymoon, yet already you've been disowned by your parents and <laughs> which, which only fuels your fire for your love, right? You don't understand this man is my soulmate. He is the one for me. And so you've placed all this energy toward this relationship. So then you are fighting internally as well yeah. to, to, to keep it alive and to yeah. justify because it's human nature you want to justify that you made the right choice absolutely and the disowning came about in part because of his efforts they love to separate you from people but mine worked a miracle very fast and the separation then provides you with no objectivity and, That's you, right. and, and like you said, your own discernment has left you because you now are, are fighting for this on an emotional level because it's all you have left now. <laughs> so you're in survival mode and, yeah. and, and you're very right. vulnerable to, for them to wield their power over you. Yeah. And it does very often, the violence, the awfulness generally does escalate when you are married on your honeymoon, when you get pregnant. The more at their mercy you are, the worse it is likely to get. 
Can you share then how you were able to extricate yourself? I'm thinking of someone who's listening who goes, oh my gosh, everything she's saying is what I'm dealing with. And I knew there was something off. I knew, but again, maybe this person's fighting currently and they're in survival mode and they are cut off from their support system. What were some of the steps that the realities of the relationship that finally became clear enough for you to say, okay, no more? And then how did you extricate yourself? Because I'm quite sure that the your husband wasn't prepared to let you go because he certainly liked this arrangement. And then the as you try to pull away, I'm sure he tried to wield even more power to keep you to stay. My own story, again, which I think is kind of useful because it's like other people's, is that I decided to leave him. He would behave extraordinarily badly when we were on holiday once. And, you know, what he was constantly doing was hitting own personal worsts, managing to be worse than before and worse than before. And on this occasion, it was so offensive to me that I said, look, this is the end of it. Well, I'm done. I'm totally done. But we were locked on holiday, three of us, him, me and our child, for another week. Somehow we didn't think to go home early, but by the time we left the holiday, we had agreed to an amicable trial separation, which is a very bad idea. So we had the amicable trial separation, and he managed to be thoroughly amicable for several months till I took him back. So my first attempt to leave failed because Mm -hmm. I caved in, and many of us do because suddenly the partner pulls out this raft of good behavior you haven't seen in a while you think we have finally turned the corner sure so I failed and then that made it hard to leave obviously but then various things happened Uh, there was the moment when I was looking at my dog and the husband said to me you've got to choose between me and the dog and this little voice in my head said it's got to be the dog (laughs) You know, I didn't think about it. It just came out because it came out because the dog was something special. Yeah. But then again, he was a good boy, and I took him—that's the husband, not the dog—back for a little while. And then again, we went on another holiday, and he was outrageously, obscenely vile. And that was it. I said to him, I am totally done. But the thing that made me do it then was I suddenly realised that there wasn't much of me left. If I didn't Mm. do it then, there would have been nothing to save. I would have just been totally broken. I don't really believe in broken, but at that point I knew my mental health was really failing, that I was about to give up on myself totally. And so I left to save what little there was. I didn't think I'd have a future. I left because I realised it would be better for my daughter. Mm -hmm. And when I say I left, actually I told him he had to leave. And amazingly, he agreed to move out because he thought he could pull the same stunt about getting back again. And he tried charming, and then when charming didn't work, he did everything he could to make divorce hell because... They don't love you, but they love the convenience and they really hate the fact that divorce can cost them financially. Mm -hmm. That that they really do not want. As you're telling your story, and I appreciate you sharing because I find that 
you and I as psychologists can talk in generality sometimes, but I feel for listeners, when we concretize a conversation through a personal example, it becomes so much more real. Like I said, a listener going, hmm, this is sounding familiar, too familiar. Mm -hmm. I think we have a better chance of really fully understanding the complexities of the circumstances. So thank you for sharing. And I know that it would have been even harder to extricate yourself from the marriage now with a child. And then yet you had to look at finally, this isn't good for my daughter either, as much as ideally we think, oh, let's keep the family intact, but not when the abuse is going on. She's watching this. And I'm sure as a mother, that became a concern as well. Yeah, a huge concern. Obviously, as a mother with a not ideal family, I wanted to do better. And so I I hear this story from clients all the time. So what you do is you try and shield the child from the abuse. And you can't. The child picks up the atmosphere for sure. And then I suspect that most abusers do this thing of running the abusive scenarios in front of the child so the child does not miss out. And the third piece of that is that narcissists, of course, will be in a competition with their own children and they will have to beat their own children and intimidate their own children. My ex was one of those um, good parent types narcissists will do this wonderful better parent routine when they've got an audience Mm -hmm. and they'll still do their gaslighting thing and tell the other parent that they're the better parent even when they've just been vile to their own child but you cannot hope as we all do hope that a narcissist will parent their own child in a normal healthy way they won't. They just won't. Well, again, it's it's the two-year-old emotional capabilities trying to parent. And like you said, the two-year-old is going to be in competition with his siblings. So then the two-year-old mm. parent essentially is going to be in competition with his or her child. Yeah. And the degree of brutality that they show, emotional brutality, is just shocking. I mean, yes, it is two-year-old emotional stuff, but for me, I can't separate it from the sort of adult brain. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen unconsciously. Narcissists think how to wound people. They really work it out. So calculated. It's a little terrifying. Yeah. It, it is. And I think that's, for me, that's really important to keep in mind. Yeah. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Karen, that's D-R-K-A-R-I-N. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. Live tweet with me when I watch my favorite shows, Will and Grace, my brand new fave, God Friended Me. And of course, all shows Bachelor Nation. Join me on Facebook where I'm stepping up my Facebook Live game. I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. As you moved past, once you were separated, and I'm thinking again of listeners who may start to strategize if this is the next step they need to take for their own personal health and emotional well-being, what sorts of ways did you go about healing, becoming stronger, reassembling yourself after repeated years of 
this narcissist breaking you down, how did you find wholeness again? And I'm sure that was a long and arduous path. (laughs) Was it just? It was enormously difficult. I think one of the things that I've learned, which I always teach clients, is that you can expect to feel pretty awful that you can expect to have a vile monologue going round in your head the whole time about, you know, how rubbish you are. And that's normal and understanding. You, you can expect to have some pretty vile days and achieve nothing, and that's okay. That's part of what you've been through. One of the biggest things that worked for me and works with a lot of of my clients and I've used it with women I've worked with in refuges and so on when they've been able to have very few resources because you know they were financially stuck and there wasn't much available for them is just something as simple as getting them to do 20 celebrations a day Mm. you know this old thing about at the end of the day you write down 20 things to celebrate yeah and I've, I've always been pretty ruthless that it has to be 20, particularly <laughs> when you feel that you've got nothing in the world to celebrate. Right. Because it requires a huge effort to think, oh, God, what was good about my day? Hmm. Well, I had a bath. <laughs> I guess the sun shone for five minutes. Someone smiled at me in the street. But the effect that that has on just lifting you emotionally is really powerful. And writing it down, committing to it, all starts to build a tiny healthy habit. Right. And a tiny healthy habit starts to build the strength and the resilience and help you reconnect with your joy so you can heal. So some of it's really, really small stuff like that. Some of it is information, getting the support that you can. Journaling is also good. Just the 20 minutes a day, the brain drain, writing down whatever comes into your head on paper. That's the Julia Cameron stuff. But I think for me, one of the biggest things that held me back and which holds a lot of people back is this thing, my God, I've been through such huge trauma. It's going to take a miracle to heal it. Mm-hmm. And there aren't miracles. The miracles are all in the small things. You know, the really boring things like 20 celebrations a day. These make the incremental changes. It's the first domino and you start pushing the dominoes over. And healing is always a possibility. But you have to start small, expect tiny results, be patient with yourself. And accept that you've learned the right to feel just as awful as you feel. And it doesn't mean you're not a worthwhile person. And the celebrations reminds me of all the psych research that correlates gratitude with well-being, emotional well-being, and happy people are grateful and grateful people are happy. And so those celebrations are a way of taking control back. Yes, from a a space of being so utterly out of control to say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, it's still bleak and I still feel pretty horrible. 
99% oh. of the day. But for this 1% of the day, I'm going to focus on celebrations. And that's me taking back control. Me not allowing this person who had power over me for so long to now cloud my joy in this moment. And I'm not going to act like I can be joyful the entire time because I'm still in recovery. But for this moment, I choose to look to joy and to celebrate. Absolutely. And to me, that's empowering to say, even emotionally, I can imagine myself in my head wanting to say, you can't ruin this moment for me. No, you ruined a lot, <laughs> but you're not taking this moment. And I love those. And they're not little gestures. Like you said, they're small practices, but they really have a profound impact. They really do. And one of the things that came out of that for me was I started to think about the ex as he was by then and think, what a complete and utter moron you are. <laughs> You know, that there is so much in this world to enjoy. And all you could do was concentrate on the negative. What kind of moron are you? And that was an, another step into my own power. Yeah. And I love that. It's all about empowering ourselves such that we can take control of moment by moment. And it goes back to the mindfulness literature, which helps us with anxiety of any sort, whether it's related to it being with a narc or not, mm. that we, when we stay in this present moment and we ground ourselves, we yeah. find that peace. And, and it's not it's not a small thing. It's really, it's not a difficult practice to learn and to implement in your life. But it's not small and it it's so powerful. And I, I think of, again, the idea of someone feeling so utterly powerless, any of these strategies to help them see that, you know what? No, you weren't powerless because you escaped, you got out of it. And yeah. so that's a celebration that every day you can clap your hands and pat yourself on the back because you survived. When someone is out there, say on the dating scene and they're starting to date someone, what again, you mentioned some of those little power plays that get implemented by the narc early on. So I would imagine you would mm. encourage women to be very savvy and aware early on in the relationship for any subtle bits of disrespect. Are there other red flags that looking back you maybe missed or that we can share with our community? Please take this seriously. This is something to be aware of. This could be a sign that this person is a narcissist. Well, there are so many. And I think one of the very big things that we have to do is do our due diligence on anybody we date. And that means actually spend time checking them out. Not look at them and go, mm, nice bum, nice manners, that will do. <laughs> right. You know, sort of, I really did research my dog much more carefully than I researched my husband. <laughs> you know, I needed a small dog with a sweet temperament who wasn't a problem with asthmatics. And there were lots and lots, and who didn't shed, and the criteria went on and on and on. But did I have criteria? I need a man who actually treats me as an equal, um, is sunny-natured, doesn't have anger problems. Did I do any of that? No, I didn't. So you actually have to take it slowly. One of the biggest red flags is someone who is all over you like a rash. They love you from day one. Mm -hmm. You're different to all the other women they've met. Scary. And they just want to spend the rest of their lives with you. 
preferably with you and nobody else but you, so please could you get rid of your friends and family. <laughs> That's big, a big red flag. Yeah. Then someone who's got either a hero story or a victim story, you know, mm. um, as in... I am actually the best at this particular thing in my field. In fact, I'm so good that I've met with hostility from every quarter. That's kind of worrying. Mm -hmm. Equally, I've had such a hard life because da -da 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 -da. that's worrying. Addictions are always worrying. Mm -hmm. My ex was crazy is always worrying. He's bad-mouthing women. Wanting to know too much about you early on is worrying. Mm -hmm. If you want to get to know someone, you can do that through small conversations. Mm -hmm. You don't have to ask them what went wrong with your last relationship or even, you know, what do you want out of a relationship. A narcissist will do that and then play act whatever it is that you said you wanted. Mm. So it pays to be really quite cagey at the beginning. Mm -hmm. These are just some of the things. And obviously, you want to notice how someone responds. One of the standard things is how do they speak to waiters? How do they deal with people they're not trying to impress? Mm -hmm. Are they nice or are they rude? Oh, yes, another one that I love is the anger test, that early on in the relationship, you want to do something which could be a little annoying or upsetting to your partner to see how they respond. Mm. And if you get full-on resentment, you've got a problem there. Right. And if they're jealous of your animal, you've got a big problem. <laughs> yes, our animals can help us vet this person. <laughs> Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your perfecter. The other thing is that I, that I think is really dangerous is this little game that we women play of your fantasy. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, so you go on a date and you think, Yes, I can just see because he eats his meal nicely. We could be together 30 years from now sitting watching the sunset in some sort of um, exotic location and it will all be wonderful. No, all you know is that he actually has adequate table manners. Do not run ahead with yourself. My friend put it this way before. He put it this way. He said, when you're in the beginning of a relationship, just sit back and watch the movie. Mm. Don't be feeding 
your co-star any lines. Mm-hmm. Don't be projecting to the next scene the way that you want it to go. Don't script out the next scene, the fourth scene. Just sit back and watch. Because otherwise, we do. We get ahead of ourselves. And then we've got these rose-colored goggles on. And all mm-hmm. we can see is this fantasy that we hope it will be. We begin completely attending to those elements that are consistent with what we're hoping and we dismiss yeah. any elements, any realities that are inconsistent with what we hope. And we, then in that case, we're duping ourselves. Totally. Yeah. And that's why you love the person so much. You love the fantasy that you've created. Right. You know, why is it worth staying with someone who's disrespecting you a bit early on? Because the fantasy promises you so much better. Right. But it doesn't. No. And that's where we have to own our part. Mm. So no matter if we've experienced this before or if we're just fresh on the dating scene, we have to be savvy. We have to lay back. We cannot rush things. I've heard it put this way. You can't rush a good thing. Yes, you can. (laughs) Rushing in the dating scene is never a good idea. Giving Mm. too much of yourself to someone who hasn't demonstrated that they are worthy of you giving. I'm not just talking about your body. I'm talking about your time, your energy, your heart, your emotions. You don't give that over too quickly to anyone. It's not wise. You know, I talk about love smarter, not harder. And I think so many of us are out there loving so hard, but not with any wisdom. We got to keep our head in the game. (laughs) Absolutely. One of the things that really helped me was when I realized, as I put it, that I could fall in love with the pebble. (laughs) I'm, (laughs) you know, I have this unfortunate tendency I have now got a lovely partner of 11 years, and he's been lovely for 11 years. He's a wonderful man. But before I arrived at him, I realized that I could fall in love with anything. (laughs) And once I realized that I could fall in love with anything, and that this was a problem for me, like eating raw garlic is a problem for me, Mm -hmm. I managed to take better care of myself. Mm -hmm. So that honesty was really useful. And I think that kind of self-knowledge helps. It does. We can't know ourselves too well. (laughs) It's impossible. That self-knowledge is protective. And and it's so, again, empowering to feel that strength of knowing, yeah. And I encourage my community a lot as well. I, I talk about wanting to be with someone, but not needing to be with someone. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a power position too, because then we go, yeah, I'm interested. Yeah. Let's get to know each other, but I don't need you to be anybody, but who you are. And I will sit back and watch. And if you're a fit, mm. then we'll keep moving forward. And if not, we won't. And I'm not going to, yes, I'll be sad because a breakup's always sad, but I'm not going to be utterly destroyed because I don't absolutely. need you to validate me or to complain me or to fill some void, then dating can be more fun and less painful on so many fronts. Dr. Kazina, as we wrap up, can you share a little bit? I have some listeners who have been in narcissistic marriages and then have been able to extricate themselves, but now they're co-parenting. 
And that provides another challenge because there's babies involved. There's children. We can't completely cut this person out of our life and move on. How do we continue to work in some sort of civil way, protecting our boundaries, protecting our self-respect and our empowered way of interacting with this person, but knowing that we still have to co-parent? I think the first thing is to really let go of any expectations that this can be done in a smooth and adult way. It can't. Yeah. That you have to accept that you will do your best for your child. You're, the narcissist will probably do their worst for the child. You're going to have to accept that as long as you are one good, loving, supportive parent giving that child a safe space, that child will be able to thrive and that the narcissist will behave even worse if they get a reaction from you to their bad behavior. So the more unmoved you can be by them, provided your child is actually safe, the better it is. Mm-hmm. There is nothing easy about parenting with a narcissist on the scene. You can't even call it co-parenting because it's not. Mm. But it, it is very, very difficult. But you have to do everything you can to stop building a narrative about it. Mm. And if the narcissist comes home having stuffed the child's head with stories about how the new partner has everything that you wanted but don't have, you've just got to really disregard all of that and just get on with the job of keeping your child safe and happy and caring for yourself and remembering that Thank God the narcissist is only a peripheral member of your life now, that they're not in your bed seven days a week. Right. I'm sure that's... There's nothing easy about it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm sure that is so, so difficult. The more effectively you can do it, the less the problems that you will have with the narcissist. But the thing is to try and not make any of the rubbish they come up with personal. Yeah. It's all about them. It's all about them. Always. I'm thinking about the identity that we can take on having gone through something. And I do see some women who it seems that they are, that this is now their identity as having recovered from a narc. And I wonder, do, is there a place where we need to let go of that identity such that we don't become then boxed in and again that we can have true freedom or do you think it's Mm. important to go you know what I went through this and I better be mindful of it so I don't go into another relationship with the same dynamics great question I think it's really important early on to know that this is where you've been you cannot ever afford those wounds again Mm -hmm. you cannot afford to go through them again and I think it's worth keeping that in the back of your mind a little bit like a recovering alcoholic mm-hmm. you know you can have alcoholics who are still recovering alcoholics after 22 years of not having a drink but you can also go into a place in time where you trust yourself 
and you can just live spontaneously. Mm -hmm. But I think you will always have a heightened awareness and that's good and I think for the rest of your life if your intuition is functioning as it should be and it will be if it says don't go there you just believe it Mm -hmm. yeah I'm so interested in the science on intuition that's coming out more and more and it's Mm. it's fascinating and I think important especially as women that yeah that we listen to it One final question. Do you believe that now with more awareness of narcissistic personality disorder, that sometimes we're in a relationship with a guy who's just a jerk and we're like, he's a narc, (laughs) when really there is a distinction between someone who's utterly to the narcissist level and someone who's just a selfish guy? There has to be a distinction and that word may be thrown around more than it should be. However, I don't understand why anybody would want to remain in a relationship with a jerk or with someone (laughs) who's selfish. So although possibly that person may or may not deserve the label, I think the point is that the person labelling the jerk is making an important point, which is, this is not right for me. Yes. And if you have to use the word narcissist to justify leaving a relationship that is not good enough, that works for me. I agree. That's fantastic. I, I like the frame it that way. Cause you know, I, th- I do believe we have a bit of diagnostic inflation in our current mm. state, which is great. People are more aware of mental health. We're more savvy about it. But then I, I do worry sometimes that people are diagnosing left and right. And that adhering to an identity of, I have this and this and this may be disempowering. Again, yeah. a little tension there for me, but I like how you explained that. I think that was well put. Dr. Kazina, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the program. I know you have a a nice little perk for my listeners, a free chapter of your book, Do You Choose Your Dogs More Carefully Than Your Husband? How can listeners find that and then let them know anything else about the services you provide or where to follow you on Instagram and the social media channels, your website and all the things? (laughs) Right. One small question. Right, I'm afraid I have the most terrible memory in the world, but I have given uh, Tim a link to the free chapter of my book, You Choose Your Dog More Carefully Than Your Husband. So there will be a link to help them find it. And that, my book, is about learning to date safely after being in a toxic relationship. You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Underscore. Annie, A-W-N-I-E, PhD. My website is recoverfromemotionalabuse.com. And there are tons of free resources and a blog that goes back virtually to the last century with lots and lots of information and resources for anybody who's interested. And you can find me through that as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing these resources with uh, our listeners and for sharing your time and your wisdom and your expertise. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think it's enlightening, empowering, and the stuff that I love to share with my community. So thanks again, Dr. Kazina. Well, thank you, Dr. Karen. The love and life hack for this week is we can take back the power We may have been disempowered when with a narc, but we can empower ourselves again. 
Dr. Annie Kazina's work shows us how. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Thanks, as always, for joining us today. And a special thank you to all of you who've joined the Love and Life family. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com. Click on the subscribe button or ask me a question. I've just rolled out some new ways to address your questions in a more personal manner if that's something that interests you. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.